pilot's plane tales. RAF Form 414, Volume 10. I apologise to you all, but it's time for my tatty old RAF logbook to come out of the cupboard again. It was a sad, sad situation. But for the recently promoted Flight Lieutenant Anderson, his departure from flying the Phantom on 43 Squadron was a reality that he had to face up to. For a while there would be classroom work to endure at the Central Flying School, RAF Leeming, a fair way south, and my wife would be alone in my married quarter at Lucas for several months until I had jumped through enough hoops to move her to my new base. Central Flying School is an august establishment that will proudly inform anyone with an interest, or not, that it is the world's longest existing flying training school. It was, and remains to this day, the RES Institution for Training Military Flying Instructors. Its tedious history goes back to Upaven Aerodrome, where it was formed in 1912 with Maurice Farmans. Over the long years, days passed very slowly at CFS, they moved along with the times and even developed formation aerobatic teams such as the Sparrows, the Redskins, the Pelicans, the Red Pelicans, the Yellow Jacks, and finally the Red Arrows. The point I'm trying to get across is that, to a course of frontline fast jet pilots, arriving at this anachronistic school with its creaking, white-haired, long-in-the-tooth-stuck-in-their-ways instructors to be called students once again was a form of chalk-dust-ridden hell, and it brought out our most rebellious tendencies. The head of ground school, whose name rhymed with the medical term for the smelly end of the alimentary canal, received an unfair proportion of blame for our situation. He and his staff did their best to explain why we should explain things to blogs, the generic name for student pilots, using four colours on the latest technology whiteboards, and in the specially structured form that was the only acceptable technique in Central Flying School. Before long, the rebellion began to take physical form, with the appearance of a grumpy staff instructor's motorbike, carefully balanced on table mats, and with his copy of the telegraph underneath to catch the oil drips, on the long breakfast table in the officer's mess. Such events usually went without the slightest comment as people sat down to their eggs and bacon with a whiff of engine oil on the side. However, when someone found their bed was no longer in their room but had been dissembled and moved up onto the corner of the three-storey building's pitched roof, reassembled and properly made with sheets, blankets and pillows, the boss got a bit annoyed. There it sat, gently swaying in the breeze, sixty feet up in the air, while he read us the riot act. The weekends were a blessed relief from the practice lectures and mass briefings we had to give, as my old ex-Jaguar pilot friend Nige and I got onto our motorbikes and set off to join our respective wives. When we hit the great northern road, he turned south and I headed north. The weather was unseasonably cold, and I well remember those long, freezing rides as I ploughed towards home through rain and sleet, 
in the sure knowledge that I would receive a warm welcome. The late Sunday return journey was the hard bit. Leaving warm, loving arms so that I could return to purgatory was heart-rending, but as I stumbled off the bike and into the mess, as often or not, I would bump into Nige. The first time this happened, he introduced me to a very bad habit by greeting me with a tooth-mug full of nectar. Returning from his tour in Germany, the land of milk, honey and duty-free booze, Nige had bought a large supply of Remy Martin VSOP fine champagne cognac with him, which he generously shared in an attempt to get the blood flowing through our cramped limbs again. I'm not sure what got us through those months, but dipping regularly into those dark green bottles certainly helped. Finally, suitably inculcated with CFS propaganda, we were released and set off to RAF Valley on the remote Welsh island of Anglesey. Its name is thought to derive from Old Norse and was the term used by Viking raiders of the 10th century. Long associated with the Druids, the Roman general Julius Agricola was finally responsible for occupying the place. In medieval times, it was often considered independent from other kingdoms, but eventually the renowned engineer Robert Stevenson, builder of the world's first railway, knocked up a bridge that joined it to the mainland in 1850. By 1940, there was an airfield there that was the home of a couple of hurricane squadrons tasked with defending the industrial northwest and the Irish Sea. By 1943, the base had become a stop-off point for United States aircraft heading to Europe. On one day alone, 99 Boeing B-17s and Liberators were ferried in from Iceland. It was now home to number four flying training school, but before we could start working with real students, we had to go through CFS Hawk, the detachment of instructor instructors who would teach us how to teach in the air. Our steed was the BAE Systems Hawk T1 that was being introduced to the RAF when I went through Valley as a student five years earlier. To be fair to our new CFS masters, they weren't quite as geriatric as those we had encountered at CFS headquarters. There were a smattering of ex-fastjet guys, but most were career instructors or from other roles. The RAF had purchased a total of 175 Hawk T1s, so there were plenty of airframes kicking around. What's more, unlike the broken old trainers they were replacing, it was an amazingly reliable aircraft. For both student and instructor, the Hawk was a great design, as has been proved by its longevity and worldwide sales to many major air forces. It's a simple trainer, just about viceless. Something that a few would criticise, but would become an ideal stepping stone into aircraft such as the Tornado and Typhoon. Whilst it was easy to fly, it certainly didn't cater to the lowest common denominator and tested every pilot who flew it, without putting them into unnecessary danger. The front had a few more whistles and bells than the back, but there was little that the student in the front seat could do that couldn't be fixed by the instructor in the back. The instructor's seat was stepped up, so that they had a clear view ahead over the top of the student's helmet, and down both sides, something that had been missing from a lot of previous trainers. 
The aircraft had moderately swept low-mounted cantilever wings and the fuselage sported a pair of cheek air intakes level with the rear cockpit that fed the single Rolls-Royce Turbomeca Adur engine, an engine that had great fuel efficiency. The Hawk was supposed to reach Mach 1.15 in a dive, but I never got it much past Mach 1 myself, but it could crack on at low level doing 540 knots very happily. In the cruise, it was okay up to about Mach 0.84. It was a great aerobatic aircraft, and although the airframe could handle plus 9 and minus 4G, it was limited by the RAF to plus 7.5 and minus 3. A dual hydraulic system powered the flight controls, gear, flaps, brakes and air brakes, but should the engine fail, a propeller-driven rat would pop out and keep everything working. It also had a built-in auxiliary power unit to motor the engine for starting. Although later versions would have weapons, a weapon sight and glass cockpit, the early T1s sported a fairly basic instrument panel. Someone had tried to save money by fitting an existing attitude indicator and compass system that was normally found in the RAF Puma helicopters. Sadly, nobody thought to check out how this would perform at high G, or if they did, they didn't care, as the system would topple appallingly. This then required a period of straight and level and unaccelerated flight before the instruments could be relied upon again. Hardly ideal if an aerobatic manoeuvre ended up in cloud, or if a bit of hard turning through a valley system then required a pull-up when the weather came down. It took us a while, but eventually a decent attitude-heading reference system was retrofitted, but not before many of us had experienced a few dodgy moments. Learning how to be a qualified flying instructor was very much monkey-see, monkey-do. The CFS bod in the front would give an example of how something should be taught, and the poor unfortunate student instructor in the back would get to demonstrate their best efforts. These were termed a give and a give back. On some exercises, we would get the chance to fly around with another student instructor, called a mutual, and practice on each other. Or, more likely, we'd hurtle around the countryside for a while and then try to pull the wings off. All the formal lessons involved, you've got it, watching a brief in four colours on a whiteboard, and when we'd seen enough of a particular lesson, we'd have to give it back to a more senior CFS board, and then hopefully that box was ticked and we'd move on to something else. From memory, there were only around 13 basic lessons, but a lot of training was made up from elements of those. However, once they were mastered, the rest was just proving one was up to speed. The flying training done at Valley was really a matter of taking real students through things that they had learnt during basic flying training, but with more speed and more accuracy. There were circuits and practice force landings, formation flying, aerobatics, stalls and spins, high-level handling, but most of the course was spent at low level. Navigation was achieved with map, compass and stopwatch, initially at 360 knots and then 420, often with a portion at 480 knots. Flying with an instructor meant doing this at 250 feet above the ground. 
Navigation sorties started in the local low-flying area of Wales, but later ones involved a high-level flight to Scotland, a low-level portion followed by a high-level return. This was where the Hawk came into its own. When the fuel came down and it was time to pull up and head for home, once we got that lovely little aircraft up to 30,000 feet or so, the fuel gauge seemed to stop moving. It seemed quite happy running on fumes. We hadn't been going very long on our CFS course, about 11 days to be exact, when we heard about RAF Wattersham's NATO tactical fighter meet. At random times of the year, various fighter bases would open their doors to one of these events, which, to the uneducated, was obviously an opportunity for units within NATO to come together and exchange important military tactics, foster a greater understanding of different modus operandi, and share our mutual respect for fellow fighter squadrons from the diverse nations in Europe. In reality, it meant get permission to bring your fighter to Wadisham and spend the night drinking copious amounts of adult beverages until everyone spoke like a pair of Dutch F-16 pilots. A few of us managed to get permission to take two of our Raspberry Ripples, named after the colour scheme of the training aircraft at the time, which resembled a tub of red and white ice cream. So, on Friday, three ex-Phantom pilots and a Jaguar pilot set off to enjoy talking tactics with our fighter pilot brethren. After parking our embarrassingly painted toy aircraft so that nobody could see them, we joined the throng of testosterone-driven fighter pilots, and indeed we drank until we were fluent in Dutch. Indeed we were so good we spoke double Dutch. At one point, I recall a Jaguar pilot trying to set his backside alight by jumping a huge bonfire, and a Phantom pilot cutting the ropes of a marquee so that it collapsed onto at least 100 drunken fighter pilots and one young lady who had been paid to stand on a table and entertain them. The resulting melee was a joy to watch. When everything had been drunk, we retired to bed with the horrible thought that the next morning, a Saturday, we had to return our hawks back to Valley. After a full English breakfast to settle the stomach, we clambered into our flying gear and set off home. I was with another fine student QFI, whom I shall call Dave Richardson, since he's now an important local politician. We were supposed to be practising exercise C-14 medium level handling on a mutual and it was my turn to give back. We got to the Welsh training area but our hearts weren't really in it so we decided to head for home. Dave was nominally the captain in the front so when RAF Valley Air Traffic asked for a favour it was down to him. The air cadets at Clandidno had a stall on the pier to recruit new members, and could we do a fly-past? Well, after only 12 days at Valley, we weren't really sure where the pier was, but Dave jumped at the chance to show off a bit, and ATC agreed to point us at the location. They took us out to sea, and then swung us around the Great Orm's Head, a sticky outbit on the north coast, and Bob's your uncle, there it was. 
Dave wound the jet up to Max chat and settled it down onto the waves. I wasn't sure how the cadets would see us being below the pier and all, but hey-ho. As we rattled past, we assumed we looked suitably impressive, and Dave cracked on some bank to see the faces of the public. But I was looking out of the front, and realised that at this speed and rate of turn, we were going to blast right over the town at zero feet. I think perhaps the night's revelry was affecting Dave, so I shouted, Pull, you twerp! Pull! Dave promptly heaved the stick into his guts. The hawk spun round on a sixpence, and we got an impressive score on the G-meter. It almost dinged like a fairground strength tester. We limped the brand new and now slightly bent X-ray X-ray 295 back to valley and after a low-speed handling check to make sure the flaps worked, we plonked it down. A couple of cases of beer later, and the engineering flight sergeant kindly did the overstress checks required, but then lost the paperwork, so nobody was any the wiser. However, I note that X-ray X-ray 295 is actually still flying, so best treat it gently, chaps. I also note that Aiken's Airplane Store of Needs, Tennessee will sell you a 1 to 72 scale Corgi diecast model of this exact aircraft for only $69.95. Although, to be completely accurate, you might want to bend the wings up a bit. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show at AirlinePilotGuy.com. If you want to help us out, then why not leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice? <laughs>